Take your Bibles, go to 2 Peter with me. Our prayer this morning, as we prayed before the service, was this. That when we look back at today, sorry, I'm going to adjust my microphone here. <clears throat> when we look back at today, we don't remember the snow. But that what we remember <clears throat> is what God did right now. And that's been our prayer. Um, <clears throat> and that will continue to be our prayer. As we read through the passage this morning, it may seem like that's going to be difficult to do. I'm getting a lot of noise from my microphone here, Scott, so I just want to make sure. I think I might be a little hot. Um, as it's going to be difficult as we read through uh, for you to think what the glorious good news of this passage might be. Because as we read through it, there's a lot of negativity that you're going to feel. And that's a result of a couple things, not the least of which is that's kind of the way Second Peter goes. It's a hard book to dig into because there's a lot of things said about people called false teachers. Um, let's do this. Let me read the first ten verses, and then I'll, I'll kind of help us guide through that and explain some of what's happening here. So Second Peter... Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Peter says this, There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials." And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Like I said, you don't read that in your devotions that morning and be like, oh, it's going to be a great day. Um, that's what makes Second Peter so difficult. It, at times, maybe not this week, but the next week's coming up, it's going to sound like Peter is calling some people names. Um... We're not used to people speaking like that in such hard ways when it comes to theology and doctrine. Now, you go back to the Reformation days, they, they have pulled no punches. There's uh, Martin Luther is notorious, famous, I don't know how you want to describe it, uh, for the way that he treated those who were, he viewed as false teachers of his day. He was the master of the insult. Now... So much so, if you Google Martin Luther Reformation insults, there is an insult generator taken from his book, so you can be insulted by Martin Luther tomorrow morning if you want. 
A few of his very aggressive comments were like this. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. Martin Luther, ladies and gentlemen. You seem to me to be a real masterpiece of the devil's art. My personal favorite. You are a bungling magpie croaking loudly. I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to use it. It's, it, I do think we need to be careful to avoid that. I do think we need to have civil dis discourse. But I also believe strongly, and those of you that know me know this, that we should never avoid speaking up in the face of deception or error, evil, and sin. We should never yield to the argument of today that we should just try to get along. After all, we're just supposed to be unified, right? Well... Unity comes from speaking truth, not from trying to get along. But doesn't the Bible say, judge not, that you be not judged? You know it does. But you also know that immediately after that, it says, use that same judgment you're using on other people to examine your own soul. And as you continue reading in Matthew 7, where that's actually said, it tells us to be on guard against false teachers tells us that false prophets are going to bring harm to God's sheep. It tells us that false prophets and false teachers are wolves. It tells us that we're supposed to watch the fruit that comes from the tree of the false teacher and false prophet so that we can be careful and be warned and be safe. And then we're to call a wolf a wolf, period. But that makes me uncomfortable. Why do you have to be so negative? Is that what you say when your doctor tells you you have cancer? That makes me uncomfortable. Why do you have to be so negative? Well, of course not. What he's done is he's identified something life-threatening in you. And by identifying it, it gives him the opportunity to then treat it and save your life. Just like you wouldn't get angry at a neighbor who comes pounding on your door at two in the morning screaming that your house is on fire and you need to get yourself and your children out of the house. You don't come out the door and punch them in the face for waking you up at two in the morning. He's warning you of real danger. He's trying to deliver you from it. Just, just like you, you, you wouldn't take your purse and hit a total stranger over the head who has reached out to stop your child from running into oncoming traffic. But, but I think the problem is we forget that the warning of false teachers, false prophets, and even idolatry is a warning that we must hear. We don't have to be comfortable with it, but we must heed it. Or else, like the fire, like the cancer, like the traffic, it's going to bring destruction in us. Listen, I... I um, I don't love wolves. I do have to do a better job at times in my own life of, of making sure that it's a wolf before I identify everything as a wolf. However, if it is a wolf, I am duty-bound by God and his word to tell you. It's the same as cancer. So, so if your doctor sees something that may be cancer, it just might be cancer, then what he's going to do, he's going to poke it, he's going to prod it, he's going to, he's going to examine it, he's going to MRI it, CAT scan it, he's going to biopsy it, he's going to do all the things that he needs to do to prove that it is or it isn't cancer. And if it is cancer, he's going to be radical in his approach. He is going to destroy it, kill it, cut it off. Why? Because if you don't, the rest of your body is compromised eventually will shut down. 
So my responsibility as your pastor is to not allow that to happen to you. So this week, next week, as I walk through what Peter's talking about specifically in chapter 2, I am leaning on the Holy Spirit's guidance in this one. To not say too much, but to say enough. And, And I know how uncomfortable it makes people when you have somebody stand up and be like, that's false teaching. But I... I like it, and they're not really doing anybody harm. That's false teaching, and I know what that does, and so perhaps what's going to happen this week and next week is uh, I may contribute to the growth of other local churches in Carroll County. All things work together for the good of God, right? Okay, we're good? All right. (laughs) Seriously, God called me to handle his word with integrity and to shepherd the sheep that he's entrusted to me, so as you've heard me say before, buckle up. All right? All right, now, make sure you don't miss the main point of the day. Um, I'm going to give you direct, I'm going to read my note of what the main point of verses 1 through 10 is. And it is this, the future of false teachers and the future of the righteous are two very different futures. The future of false teachers and the future of the righteous are two very different futures. Okay, so what Peter tells us in verse 1 is false teachers aren't a new thing. Many translations at the beginning of verse 1 begin that with a conjunction, with, with but, because at the end of chapter 1, Peter is saying, okay, holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they brought that prophecy to you, but there were indeed false prophets among them as well. So false prophets had, had interjected themselves into the, the lives, into uh, the, 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 the surroundings of those holy men of God who were bringing real prophecies. Now, as you read scripture, what you find is there are ways to determine if a prophet is a true prophet or if the prophet is a a false prophet. Let me me start here. Deuteronomy 18.20, it says this. The prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must sell books. This is an aggressive approach. That's given in the book of Deuteronomy. When his message proves to not be the very message of God, there must be judgment brought to him. Verse 22, a couple verses later. When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, the message does not come true or it is not fulfilled. That is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. So if their message does not come true, they claim to speak for God. They make a prediction based on their prophecy. It doesn't come true. They are a false prophet. You cannot claim to be a prophet, be wrong, and then say, I'm not a false prophet. So that was one of the identifying factors. Another identifying factor is that his message uh, would actually prove true, but then he would point the people to serve another god. I mean, he's he's talking about this, he says, listen, there's a sign and wonder that he has promised you comes about, and he says, let's follow other gods. Look at Deuteronomy 13, verse 5 here. It says that prophet or a dreamer must be put to death because he's urged rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the place of slavery to turn you from the way the Lord has called and commanded you to walk. You must purge the evil from you. Okay, I'm, uh, just, just to be clear, I want to make sure this is clear. It goes, I thought it goes without saying, but that's usually where I get in a lot of trouble. So, so, so to make sure it's being said, I am not saying we would hunt down false teachers and prophets and put them on death row. But what I am saying is God wanted these people to be dealt with significantly, particularly that last phrase, purge the evil from you. Call it a wolf and get it out from your midst. A false prophet 
is not somebody who doesn't claim to be a Christian. In this text, what we're told by Peter is a false prophet is someone who is among the people. So he makes the claim, but then teaches contrary to what God would say. A false prophet is not somebody who is a new Christian who's humbly trying to work things out in their theology. But a false prophet is someone who is stubborn and influential enough to distract from Jesus' redemption as primary importance. A false prophet is not somebody who misspoke once about a doctrine they hold to. Um, if that's the case, guilty. Almost on a weekly basis. Where there's an abundance of words, Proverbs chapter 10 says, sin is unavoidable. I know this may surprise you, I talk a lot. And when you're talking about theology and doctrine, when you're talking about the things of God, and you're trying to simplify them, which is what my attempt is, you try to draw pictures of theology and doctrine, many times what you end up doing on Sunday afternoon is everybody else is taking their nap, you sit in your chair like this. Did I really say that? Sorry. So it's, it's not that. A false prophet is not somebody who disagrees with a secondary issue of doctrine but rather somebody who denies a primary doctrine. So let me distinguish the two. A secondary doctrine is something like the modes of baptism, when, where, how people should be baptized. Even to a degree, a secondary doctrine would be the gifts of the Spirit. It would be the liturgy, the way we worship, the way we run our services. It would be, uh, does your pastor wear a robe or does he get look like this? A secondary doctrine can be that. It can be homeschool versus public school. Steelers, Ravens. I mean, okay, I just want to see if you're paying attention. You're not, so this is good news. <laughs> it's a secondary doctrine. What are primary doctrines? I, whenever I'm asked that, I always go to, there's five. I'm, I'm sure I could be pressed into more, but these are, for me, the, where I start. The inerrancy of Scripture the inerrancy of Scripture never should be challenged. The inerrancy of Scripture. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. The literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the necessity of a substitutionary atonement for the salvation of men and women. Those are the primary doctrines. So, so it's not somebody who disagrees on something of less importance, but somebody who, who, who is a denier of things that are of primary importance. A, a false teacher has the end result of their teaching. Remember, you're supposed to look at their fruit. The end result of their teaching is the maligning or bringing shame to the truth. Hmm. Let, me, let me try to explain. Let me, I'll simplify it. How do they bring shame to the truth? Oftentimes they do it when they minimize the importance of God's word. Instead, relying on their own experience, their own feelings, to express what they think is of most importance, which usually means they're focusing on their own thoughts, their own morals, their own opinions, their own understandings, their own priorities. It's a sign of a false teacher. The text tells us that in verse 3, they will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. There's a lot, of, a lot of cool words in there. If we understand, it'll give you a fuller picture of what the danger is of the false teacher. They will exploit you in their greed with their made-up stories. Exploit means, literally, to travel for business. To travel for business. That means 
this is their occupation. That means they need to make a sale. They're going to exploit you, attempt to make a sale in their greed. That's their motivation for exploitation. It's their greed. It's, it's, it's not always about money. Greed is not always about money. It's about power. It's about influence. So, so what they're doing is they are attempting to make a sale out of motivation, out of their own greed, because they want a standing, they want power, they want influence, they want finances, and they're doing these things by selling you made-up stories. That, my favorite word in the whole text right there, made-up stories. That word for made-up is plastos in the Greek, where we get our word plastic from. The stories they are trying to sell you are the stretchy kind that they can make fit into any shape. And so they're trying to deceive you with these, these plastic stories for their own advantage. They're trying to use you for their own gain, convincing you all along it's actually for you. And when you don't buy it, they're filled with rage. It's one evidence that you're dealing with a false teacher, the way they handle rejection. When they are filled with rage, why are they filled with rage? Because if you don't get exploited by them, if you don't fall for their made-up stories, their plastic stories, then that directly impacts their wallet, their influence, their power, their ability to maintain control. So there's a consistency in Scripture in the message of false prophets. In the Old Testament, we see it a number of times, particularly in the book of Jeremiah. What you find is they deny judgment. Jeremiah 14 says this, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, and who say this? There'll never be sword or famine in this land. See, no judgment. God says, no, by sword and famine, these prophets will meet their end. The people they are prophesying to will be thrown in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. A false prophet will most often teach that there is no judgment. Jeremiah 29, one of our favorite verses in all of Scripture. I know the thoughts I have for you. Thoughts for a future, a hope, right? The context of that is this, this, this other false prophet coming and saying to the people, I heard from God, two years and we're out of here. Nothing to worry about. And God says, hey, Jeremiah, can you go straighten that out for me? I never said that. Um... It's going to be hundreds of years. So get comfy. Build your homes. Get married. Work for the good of the city. Know this, that even in judgment, I'm going to be present with you and I have a good plan for you. That doesn't evaporate just because I'm judging you. Judgment is part of my good and perfect plan for you. So would you go fix that, please? Again, false prophets tend to deny judgment. How about this one, Jeremiah chapter 6. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially by claiming this. Peace! Peace! When in fact there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they acted so detestably? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. Therefore they will fall. Among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. A false prophet will regularly deny judgment. When you get to 2 Peter, 
we'll see they're saying virtually the same thing. It begins with him talking about in verse 2, many will follow their depraved ways. The ways of the false teacher and the false prophet are marked by, the CSB translates this as depravity. Other versions translate it as sensuality. Many will follow their sensuous ways. Many will follow their depraved ways. Oftentimes in scripture when that word is used, it accompanies the idea of sexual sin, but not always. These sensual ways, these depraved ways, are marked by a shameless greed. Here's a, let me give you a definition of this word <coughs> Excuse me, that I, I think is, is helpful. Depra- depravity or sensuality in that, the way it's being used in this fr- uh, verse means the soul that will not discipline itself no matter who is watching. The soul that will not discipline itself no matter who is watching. We just saw a verse that mentioned that, Jeremiah chapter 6. They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. So they do whatever they want. That's called depraved ways or sensual ways that Peter is talking about. And they live that way for one reason. They don't think they're ever going to have to answer for it. So they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, because there is no judgment, nobody's looking. In fact, Peter's going to say this in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, where is this coming? This is what the, the false teachers are saying at the time. Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. He ain't coming. We don't have to worry. We can do whatever we want. But Peter says clearly, their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction doesn't sleep. It's not going to miss its appointment. Judgment is going to come. It's almost as if Peter is saying, listen, where in the world do you get this idea that, that God would never judge anyone? Where do you get that idea? I mean, God has always judged the ones who have made sensuality their M.O. or depravity their M.O. And then Peter, because he's kind and gracious to us, does a quick Bible study on judgment and deliverance, showing us the future of false teachers and the future of the righteous are two very different futures. And he begins, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 4 by saying this, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. He, he does this Bible study. He begins by saying, okay, we're going to talk about the fallen angels. So, so you think God's not going to judge? God judged angels. So who are these angels that, that, that Peter is talking about? Well, Peter doesn't tell us for certain. There are a couple of options that we could spend the next four hours working through. Uh, Jude mentions these angels who didn't keep their position and were punished. Genesis 6, many people think it's referring to Genesis 6 and the, the idea of the sons of God, of those angelic beings who stepped outside of the boundaries that God had set for them and they had relations with the daughters of men. It's possible we don't know for sure what any of that is, but we can know the type of thinking that accompanies this fall of the angels because it's the same type of thinking that Lucifer had. These who are in the very presence of God and still choose rebellion. I will do what I want, when I want, and God will do nothing about it. So why would I hide it? 
That's the open and obvious rebellion challenging that God will not judge. That is the depravity we just talked about. That is the sensuality we just talked about. The soul, <coughs> excuse me, the soul that will not discipline itself no matter who is watching, even if that who is God. Peter says, of course God's going to judge. See the fallen angels? Of course God's going to judge. And he continues, and he says, it didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Says, God's certainly going to bring judgment. Look at the world before the flood. I mean, remember the definition of, of depravity and sensuality, the soul that will not discipline itself no matter who is watching. And then think about Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Rampant, unrelenting, unashamed sin in the sight of God, living in a way that openly challenged his justice. And God judged them for it. Verse 6, and he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. The cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm not going to get into all of it both for time and for sensitivity's sake, but let's just say there was a self-indulgence, a lack of restraint, unashamed of this moral depravity that was in them. That is the picture of sensuality and depravity that Peter is talking about. God judged them by raining down fiery road tar on them. So you say he won't judge. He will judge. He will judge. Stop saying that, that because he hasn't, he won't. Don't mistake God's patience for his approval or his lack of intentionality with justice. There is coming a day when those who have co-opted the things of Jesus for themselves, for their own greedy advantage, and have minimized the need for a savior, because after all, who needs a savior? Who's going to stop us in doing what we do? There's coming a day when they're going to be met with the white, hot wrath of God. I told you it would be a little difficult to find the glorious hope in our passage today. Here it comes. Peter's not done. It's not just about judgment. He offers encouragement. Look, look he says, when, then the Lord knows, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He says, I know how to rescue the godly. Here is this encouragement. He talks about two specific individuals who he rescued in the midst of great difficulty, in the midst of judgment. You look at verse 5, he didn't spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, when he brought the flood, and, and, and this is the picture of this grace that God offered Noah that was undeserved, unmerited, unearned. God appears to Noah and says, 120 years from now, I'm going to send a flood, you get building a boat to rescue those people who are going to respond to my grace. And for 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And you know who responded to God's grace? No one. But Noah. And as a result, he and his family were rescued from the flood. They got in the boat, and the grace of God floated on top of the water. You've been given that same opportunity. 
God will, in fact, judge. And there's only one escape, and it's Jesus. We have an opportunity to respond. That's the gift of grace that, that we should never overlook. God is a redeeming God. He loves to redeem. He loves to rescue. So he's offered you this grace with, with his impending judgment coming. He has reached out to you and he's offered you this grace. Are you going to respond to his grace? It's the only escape. Maybe a little more shockingly. seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, time out, hold up, I don't know if you know the story of Lot, not so righteous, but Peter says, no, 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 you, you have a misunderstanding of Lot, God's perspective on Lot is completely different than our perspective on Lot. We have some clues here, right? He rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for that righteous man lived among them day by day. His righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he, he saw and heard. So, so, so there's some clues that something is inside a Lot that wasn't in everybody else. And, and, and what we find is that Rot, sorry, Lot was, in fact, righteous. So as, and his righteousness before God had nothing to do with his behavior, had to do with what God did for him. When you read the story of Lot, what you find over and over again is this. Unthinkable mercy. Mercy for the one who had come to the very end of himself, face to face with the total brokenness of the world around him. Unthinkable mercy. Unthinkable mercy for the ones, not the ones who can put themselves back together and figure it out on their own. Unthinkable mercy for the ones who have nothing else to do but cry out to God for rescue. Peter makes it a point to drive home this this truth. Not, Not just there's a judgment coming and the false teachers will meet a just end, but he also says, listen, this is about the grace and mercy of our God. It's available to you. The righteous will meet a glorious end. It'll come through the amazing grace and unthinkable mercy that God has offered them. And please, when you hear these words from Peter, don't separate the teaching from the teacher. (laughs) This is Peter. Peter. Get behind me, Satan, Peter. Never knew him. Don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. Peter. says his grace and mercy are available. Even to those who feel like they don't deserve it. Even to those who you think don't deserve it. There is judgment. Know that, live like that. But we, in Christ, don't need to fear that judgment because God is in the business of offering amazing grace and unthinkable mercy to Noah, to Lot, to Peter, me, to you. God has seen you in your greatest need. A sinner separated from God because of your sin. Please don't fool yourself. You and God are not good if you are outside of Christ. And you can't fix that yourself. 
please know this. You may be here and not feel like you deserve grace. You may feel like you don't deserve grace, uh, mercy. But he's extended it to you. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. God sent his son who perfectly fulfilled the law of God and humbly came and, and took the form of a servant to be our substitute on the cross. He was willing to go to death, even death on the cross, so that you and I could have our sin debt forever forgiven. The path of the false teacher. The path of the righteous. Are going to come to two very different ends. Have you received the offer of grace? Or the gift of his mercy? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your good word to us. Thank you for your kindness to us, your graciousness to us. And Father, I pray that as we, we end our time, that we would simply be overwhelmed with who you are and what you've done for us. I pray for the one who doesn't know you. That maybe even in this moment they would cry out to you. I mean, Father, they, that we cry out simply that they're a sinner who needs a savior. And they can't do anything about it themselves. That, that, that they know that Jesus is your son. That, that he came to rescue them. That he died the death on the cross. And that his death paid in full the penalty for their sin. Pray, Father, that they would turn their back on trusting in anyone or anything else and simply lean on Jesus alone. God, for those of us who have known you for a long time, it is easy for us to grow complacent. It's easy for us to think that maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're not going to come back anytime soon. It's easy for us to think that we have deserved this grace and deserved this mercy. But God, I pray that you would fill our eyes full of how big you are and how small we are so that we would recognize and understand fully what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray it would overwhelm us. So as we sing together, Lord, may it be from our soul to remember how great you are. Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.